You know, one of the things that's true about life is the more that you hang around with people, particularly people who are like-minded, the more you will hear stories of life. You're going to hear good stories and you're going to hear bad stories, but you will hear life stories. And, and most of these stories have a similar pattern in the way that life gets played out. And so what it looks like is we have real-life issues, and those real-life issues become disruptors in our life, sometimes even to the point that we're no longer, we no longer have the ability to deal with it or overcome our issue in our own willpower. As hard as we try, as hard as we want to overcome whatever life issue is disrupting my life right now, we can't have, we, do, we just come to the place where we have no ability to overcome it. It has its tentacles so deep into our life that it's not just interrupting and disrupting our inner peace. It's, it's not just to the point of messing us up inwardly. It starts to have an effect on our relationships outwardly, and most notably, our relationship with God. Life issues that are cyclical in our life have a way of disrupting life and disrupting the flow of life, particularly the flow of life that we have with God. Something happens, it goes bad, we see something coming along, and all of a sudden we know we're not talking with God anymore. Our time uh, that we want to spend with God dissipates. We are no longer seeking God out. We are no longer carving out time in our schedule to meet with God so that we can read His Word, so that we can make our requests known to Him, so that we can hear what God has to say to us. We just don't do that. All of a sudden, that relationship seems to have gone flat. There's nothing left in it for us. And because of that, now it starts to affect our other relationships. If you have a spouse, if you're married, all of a sudden that relationship becomes very um, agitated and tentative. The friendships that we have with other people, they notice that something's going on in our life and we take a look at what's going on in our life and we think it's okay, but everybody else is going, something is seriously wrong and going on in this life. And, and what we find ourselves is, is that if we're not continually growing spiritually, moving upward in our relationship with Christ, then we are, um, we're going the other way. We're declining in our relationship with God. I know there are some people that think, well, I've just hit this plateau in my life with God. I'm not really growing. I've not really gone anywhere with God, but I really don't think that I'm going the other way. I'm going to tell you something. There in your relationship with God, there is no such thing as level ground. You're either this way or you're that way. You can't have one. You can't have level ground. It's either sink or swim. That's what happens in our relationship with God. But what happens a lot of times is the way life plays out for us is we have some kind of a life issue that comes in and it starts to mess up our life and it starts to ruin the relationships that we have around us. Here's, here's what it looks like as it hinders and hampers and disrupts our relationships 
even with Jesus, you will find that you're withdrawn. You're easily angered. You're less productive. You will go to places and in the process of this whole dealing with this issue of blame shifting. After all, it's someone else's fault or it's something's fault that I'm acting the way I'm acting. Matter of fact, it might even be your fault. It certainly isn't me. You're the one that has the problem. It's not me. And, and then after all that kind of takes place, and we think that we've got this kind of, you know, dealt with, we're hiding all this stuff, we still believe we have the ability to deal with our issue. We feel that, you know, if, if I open up and let God see what's going on in my life, he's not going to like who I am. And we might even feel that I've let God down again. And so what we, there's kind of this weird thing that we do because we know that this, this issue in our life, let's just call it what it is, it's a sin issue that we're dealing with that is reoccurring in our life. And it, it seems to be the same cyclical thing that we have to keep dealing with all the time. And so what we do is we go like, God must be sick of this sin that's in my life. Therefore, I deserve the misery that I have right now. And I'm not going to go to God and I'm not going to ask God to, to relieve the misery that I'm in. I deserve what I've got right now. That's what we believe. Or we believe that we can handle this. God doesn't need to get involved in this. I can deal with this issue no matter what it is. I can deal with it on my own. It's not that big of a deal. God, I've got this. Don't worry about it. And, and so we're, we think that we've got it taken care of, and yet we find ourselves in this place, and um, we're pretty miserable. And so as things get to the point of desperation, we finally come to the place where we go like, all right, God. I can't stand it anymore. I can't stand myself. My family hates me. My friends don't want to hang around me. My business is going in the tank. My coworkers don't like me. I'm just a miserable individual, and I need you to kick me in the tushy just to get me moving again. And so we come to the place, and we, it's usually like this. Well, you're my last resort. <laughs> The God of creation that can do anything. He becomes our last resort. Okay. God goes like, all right. And so it moves us into the place where we're ready to repent. We've lived in this misery long enough. It's made our lives like just totally dysfunctional on all levels. And now we finally come to the place where we're admitting that we need God's help and we'll repent of our sin. And guess what happens when we say to God, I repent and I want your forgiveness, God goes, here it is. I've just been waiting for you to ask for it. Now here you go. And all of a sudden, what we start to experience is we have this peace that we start to gain back into our lives. We start to have a, a sense of God's presence helping us and guiding our lives. And so what we do is we're like, oh, why did I wait so long? Why was I so stubborn? Why did I just do my own thing? Why, 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 when I could have had God immediately? And then we're, we're living in this, 
this spiritual euphoric place with God because now God and I are good again and we're talking and I'm reading the word and I'm bringing my requests and I'm, I'm continually repenting and that's happening for four to six months and then guess what happens? All of a sudden, something in our soul says, here it comes again. The cyclical part. We have this sense that that issue that besets our life is hanging right back here. We can't see it, but we can feel it. We know it's right here, and every time we turn, we can see a glimpse of it, and so we get into a place of fear that we're going to give in to the temptation that's coming along. And so what we do is, is we struggle, and we fight against it, and we push hard, and we say, no, I'm not going down that path again. No, I'm not going to let that thing intrude into my life. I'm not going to let that thing take over my life again. I'm not going to let that happen. I refuse to let that happen. And so we will ourselves to the point where we're going like, nope, not again, not going to happen again. And so we, we put it off. And then that thing doesn't come back at us. And we think we finally licked it. But then all of a sudden, a week, two weeks later, boom, it's right there in front of us. And we go like, oh, not again. And we give in to it. And that besetting issue in our life makes the cycle again. And we're back into a place where we're just like, I can't believe that I let this thing get control of my life. And here's the, here's the crazy thought, is, is that we, we keep going like, and we read verses that we're supposed to be trans, transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we are new creatures in Christ, that, that God deals with our sin and he removes it as far as the east is from the west. And we have all these verses that we have in our mind about how God works in us and through us and for us. And yet here we are and we're going, this doesn't feel like a victorious life. This doesn't feel like I've got a renewed mind. It doesn't feel like I'm a transformed human being. It feels like I'm on the same old treadmill doing the same old thing day in and day out. And God must be just sick and tired of my behavior. And why would God love me anyway? He doesn't love me. And by the way, I can't live up to what God wants me to do. And again, I've disappointed God. And, and, and it's so completely overwhelming to me that I just don't know what to do. And, and so we have these big problems. And no matter how you think about it, we try to come to the place where we're covering up that problem. We try to mask it is what we do. It's the problems right there. The issue is in front of our face. And so what we do is we slip this mask on because we believe that if I put this facade in front of everybody else, then nobody will know what my problem is. And so I'm wearing a mask. I'm wearing a facade just to try and trick everybody and to trick God. And God's going like, what? Are you kidding me? I formed you in your mother's womb. There is no place you can go on this earth to get away from my presence. You go to the highest heights, I'm there. You go to the lowest depths, I'm there. When you go to bed at night, I'm right there. And when you rise in the morning, I'm right beside you all the time. There's no place you can get away from the, my presence. God has made that promise to us. And so we have that reality, but yet we wear this mask and we try to hide it from everybody. And then the next thing we know is we're hiding this our, our real self behind the mask uh, around everybody else in church and around our family and around our friends. And the problem with wearing a mask is, is that it, it's a see-through mask. We think we're hiding, but our, our family and our friends, they look right through that mask and they see everything about us and they know what's going on. 
They know the issues that we're dealing with. And the last person to know that the mask isn't working is me. Because I've duped myself into thinking that my mask is covering up the reality of my issues that are being played out in front of you. So, we wonder where God's best is for us. We wonder how we're going to deal with it. And I am absolutely 100% convinced of this one thing. That God's best for us isn't to cover up our issues. He wants to completely annihilate the issue that plagues our life so that we know what it means to walk in fullness and freedom in Jesus Christ. That's what he wants for us. And so what we're supposed to do, the reality is we're to to give Jesus complete access into every aspect of our life. There's not a part of it that's hid from him anyway, so we might as well give the invitation that he can come in and radically and utterly remove all of those issues that we know have been a stumbling block in our lives so that we know what it means to live in freedom in Jesus. Now, here's the sad truth about that kind of cyclical behavior. This this isn't a problem new to the 21st century. This problem isn't new to those who were walking in Christ. This problem isn't new to the church that the apostles planted. This is a part of the human condition. It's the part of the human condition why Christ went to the cross. He's going, you guys have got this cyclical problem going on in your life. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to deal with that problem once and for all so that you know what freedom is. But somehow we've missed the markers or the identification of what it means to live in that kind of a freedom. And so as we continue our study on judges, we're now going to look at one of the most difficult passages and stories, I believe, in all of the Bible. And, and, and as some people have read this story, it makes them wonder if God really is a loving and gracious and merciful God. Because it, it's such a bizarre thing, but it, it comes back to what we're talking about, cyclical behavior. So let me start us off by reading in Judges chapter 10, and we're going to start with verse 6. And it says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So now, if you've been with us at all during this series in Judges, you're going to go like, all right, just like God, you're both thinking, here we go again. And you're absolutely right. It just seems like every time that Israel gets their feet underneath them, spiritually speaking, they have a leader who comes along and rescues them from the oppression of of other nations that God placed as um, discipline for the nation. And then the judge comes along and, and chases the other nation out, sets freedom, brings liberty, brings justice, brings harmony, brings a righteousness and holiness to the entire nation, and they're living in this place of, 
of prosperity, not just in a physical sense, but also in a spiritual sense. They have a spiritual leader who keeps pointing them to the reality of God. And so you have a spiritual leader who has set out a spiritual compass for the entire nation. And as that spiritual leader progresses in life and leads spiritually, the nation follows spiritually. But guess what? Those spiritual leaders die. And it seems that as soon as the spiritual leader dies, the, the spiritual compass of the nation dies, and then they get back into this cyclical behavior where they're coming in and they're, they're dealing with their sin again. And, and, and it's kind of like as long as you have someone who's standing up in the middle of society and going like, hey, stop doing that. That liberal thinking that says God doesn't exist or God doesn't care. And that's not who our God is. Our God says we're to live righteous and holy lives. And everybody goes, oh yeah, that's what we need to do. And they step in and they start to do it. And, and yet what happens is, is that there's this pattern of, of disobedience that comes in and even though God is long-suffering, he still comes to the end of his patience, and there will always be consequences for the disobedience of our lives. It's the same thing God does with us today. God is long-suffering, and he's willing and ready to forgive us, but we still are going to have to face the consequences of our disobedience. When we disobey God, there's no free pass on it. It will come back, and we will have to deal with it. And again, it seems like something that I've been saying often. Maybe it's just through the series in Judges. But God disciplines those who he loves because they are his children. And so sometimes we just need to step in and say, uh, bring the discipline so I can step into repentance and move forward out of where I'm at, right? Amen? Verses 7 and 9. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Amorites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel for that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, in, which is in Gilead. And the Amorite crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, and against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So here it is again, God's discipline stepping in. He's using... <laughs> God is using wicked and sinful people to bring discipline onto God's people. Do you ever think about that? that God will use wicked and sinful people to wake his people up out of their sinful behavior so that they turn around and they recognize the holiness and the righteousness of God so that they will start to walk again in holiness and righteousness with God. I mean, take a look at our political landscape. The wickedness and the evil that we have as leadership in this country on all levels should be a wake-up call for Christ's followers to be falling on their knees and crying out to God 
rescue us from this oppression that we have going on. And I'm going to tell you, it's only going to get worse before it gets better. Until we get to the place where we're crying out to God and saying, how long, O oh Lord, how long do we have to suffer under the oppression of these wicked and evil people that we call leaders? Maybe that kind of a prayer is the kind of prayer that is going to then bring back the return of Christ. And Jesus is going to say, okay, I've had enough too. I'm coming back and I'm going to claim everyone who follows after me and we're going to separate the sheep from the goats. So here we have God's judgment against Israel and the disobedience of idolatry and other debauchery that comes with idolatry. Let's read on. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidians, also the Amalekites and the Mayonnaise, oh, sorry, Mannonites, oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us what seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. All right. So all of a sudden, Israel is thinking like, you know what? We've kind of done this a lot with God. What we do is we have the spiritual leader who sets out the, the spiritual direction for the entire country. And that spiritual is, leader is leading us in righteousness and holiness. They die and we say, okay, that was enough of that because that's too hard. Let's now make these idols out of our own hand. Let's fabricate these things and let's start to worship these things. Let's put them in our houses. Let's go and put them in our places of worship. Let's put them in our social clubs. Let's put them at the community center where we have our markets set up. Let's put up these idols everywhere. Let's worship these things. Let's follow the, the, the principles of what it means to be idol worshipers. And there's all kinds of, of uh, terrible and wicked and evil things that happen in idol worship. You've heard me say it before, child sacrifice was one of them. And then there's prostitution is another thing. And all kinds of other uh, sick sexual sins are taking place among the people as they worship these things. And then, and then God sends in and brings his uh, discipline to the nation and they go like, oh, we're sorry, God. We didn't mean it. Please rescue us. And God rescues them. This time God throws them a curveball. They didn't see it coming. God goes, are you crazy? Who do you think I am? Do you think that I am, in, am some kind of a God who needs you so desperately that I'm just going to fall into this thing, that I'm just that stupid? Nope, here's the deal. I'm done rescuing you. I'm done saving your hides. Here's what's going to happen. Those idols that you've made, those things that you put all your trust into, whatever it is that you're trusting the most, you cry out to that God. Go ahead. Cry out to whatever it is that is your God. And let that thing now rescue you because I am done with it. And they're all going like, 
God, you're not operating the way we want you to operate. You're not doing stuff the way we expect you to do it. You're not doing stuff the way you've always done it. You just did something different. And, and that just blows our minds. And, but please, God, do to us whatever you need to do. But, but don't, you know, don't leave us stuck here in this misery. You know, one of the things that is a, a truth about this scenario it was true then and it's true now. When our lives are humming along and they're going really well, things are moving along and we've got no care in the world, uh, everything just, everything's falling into place. Work is good, family is good, relationships in church are good. You know, everything is just moving along really well and we really like the rhythm of life and it's moving along and it's all good and we're just going like, yeah, it's, this is great, this is great, this is awesome. And then all of a sudden, er, life takes a left-hand turn. Left-hand, left-hand turn. Left-hand turn. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're going like, oh no, my life is a mess again. And what do we do? That's when we fall on our knees and we cry out, cry out to God. We're going, God, I've made a mess of my life again. Come and rescue me. That's the cry we make. We do it just like they're doing it. We, we, we get this thing going, and when, when life is good and things are cruising along and everything's just honky-dory, we don't think twice about God. We don't stop and give Him thanks. We don't stop and praise His name for all the good things He's doing. We don't stop and take a look around and go like, this is the blessing of God. I'm going to get on my face and I'm going to worship God on my face because He's such a holy and righteous God. What we do is we just keep pressing on because it's all good. It's when things go south, when things go bad, that all of a sudden, and it takes a while, all of a sudden, then we're going to go like, God, something really drastic has happened in my life. It's really bad and it's really horrible and I don't know what to do. And that's when we turn around and we, we cry out to God to come and help us. Is when things are going bad. Why aren't we crying out to God to help us when things are going good? So Israel, everything's swirling around in the toilet and heading really south in a heartbeat. And they're going like, God, do whatever it takes. Just rescue us. Look at verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Does that sound just a little bit odd to you? So here's the picture I want you to get in your mind. We've got all these idols packed up everywhere, and we're going like, God, we're going to show you how serious we are about, about you coming because we want to just serve you. Honey, get the boxes. We're going to pack up all of our idols. Get them in the boxes. All right, let's take them down to the storage unit and put them in the storage unit, lock them up, and leave them there because that's what we're going to do. We're going to put our idols away. We're just going to stick them over here. We're just going to take them out of the house. We're going to clean everything up. Does that look really good? I'm telling you right now, you would think that someone who's got, who's, who got themselves into this predicament by having these idols Putting them away would be the last thing you'd want to do. You would want to take those things out into the driveway with a sledgehammer and crush them and smash them and burn those things and absolutely annihilate every aspect of an idol. You want to get rid of every trace of it. You want to show God how serious you are about following Him. And so these things that are ruling my life, I'm absolutely going to 
annihilate. I'm going to destroy them. Because, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And so when people are desperate for God, they're going to do the things that are going to say to God, this is how serious I am about following you and doing what you're calling me to do. And yet, we just pack up those little idols, we put them in a box, we stick them down in the storage unit. And then we go, look, God, look how good I've been. I've gotten rid of that thing. It's nowhere to be found. And it says that God just got tired of the misery of Israel. You know, there's, there's a point when things just get so miserable that you just go like, I'm done. I, I'm done with, with all the misery that's going on in this thing, and so I'm going to help you out. So what he did was, he says, I'm going to bring in a judge that's going to help you. And so in Judges 11, um, this is where we pick it up with our judge for today, who's Jephthah. And here's his story. Now Jephthah, the Goledite, was a mighty warrior. But he was the son of a prostitute. Uh, Gilead was, his, was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance of our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers to the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. You see what happened here? He's got this family, even though he, he's an illegitimate child. He's an illegitimate child. That's what his brothers are saying. There's no legitimacy about you. Even though our dad went off and slept with a prostitute, and you're the, 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 the end result of our dad's sinful behavior, we don't want you around because you're not from our mom. You're not from our family tree. You're from this little this one stick over here. You have no business being here at all. And so they drove him out, and he said, adios. And when he took off, instead of looking around and finding some really great guys to hang around with that worship God, he ends up in a gang. These guys are going out, and they're causing trouble. They're not the guys you want your daughter to hang out with. And, and here's your son. He's hanging around with a gang of scoundrels. And, and so that's what he's doing. But he, uh, the important thing to know is this guy's a mighty warrior. Like he is going to put the fight on somebody. And, and so then the, the, later the Ammonites, they came against Israel in war. And the Israelites sent for Jephthah. They asked for his help. And the elders of Gilead offered to, to serve Jephthah, make him their leader. Now here's the funny thing. These um, elders of Gilead, they're his brothers. Idiots. The best thing you've got for him, going for you, you know, in, in wartime, you chase him out of town. Now you have to go back and eat some crow and ask him to come back and save your hide. And so that's what they do. They go to Jephthah and they go, look, dude, we will we'll make you the head of everything. Only you come and help us to get out of the pinch that we're in. We really need you. And he says, you swear to the Lord that you're going to make me the leader of this clan? Yep, we swear. Let, let God be our witness. And they, he said, okay, I'll come. And so what he does is when he comes, he sends a message off to the Ammonite king to avoid war. But the Ammonite king, he rejects Jephthah's message, and war was inevitable. And Jephthah, here's what he did. He made 
a deal with God. Now remember, things got really bad. And when things get really bad, we turn to God and we say, God, we need you to intervene here. We need your help. We are so desperate for you. Then we do just like Jephthah does. He makes a deal with God. Listen to the deal he makes with God. He, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Amorites, Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And then verse 32, so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave him them into his hand. In other words, the victory was so pronounced that it could only be attributed to God, that God gave gave Jephthah the victory. It was for the glory of the name of God. God delivered through Jephthah. Jephthah was being used by God to do some miraculous things in this battle against the enemies of Israel. And he came in and he drove them out and he slaughtered them and he killed them and he did everything God asked for him. And it was one of the most magnificent times of his life because here he is, he's being used by God to do something of righteousness, something of holiness, to free the people, to set people free. And he recognizes it's not of himself, it's of God. It's God using him to do some pretty big things. This is one of those big ministry moments in life where you're just like soaring high because you're going like, it was God and it was me and we did this stuff and God used me in a mighty way and oh man, it was mind blowing and this is the most amazing thing I've ever done in my life. And you're going like, I can't wait to get home to tell my wife. I got to go home and share it. Look what I did. Look what God did. Man, I can't wait to tell her. And so here he goes. He goes off. He goes to go home. And in verse 34 it says, When Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. In other words, he didn't follow in the path of his father and go and sleep out around with a bunch of other women. He had one wife, and from that one wife, he had one and only child. And he made a vow to God that whatever came out of that door when I came home, I'm going to offer to you as a burnt sacrifice. And out comes his daughter and the, and the joy and the adulation and the, the high-flying ministry stuff we just did with God. All of a sudden, it goes down into the tank and now it's the most miserable day of your life. His one and only... How do you explain to your wife, hey, baby, bad news. Made this vow to God. We got to kill our daughter. I'm pretty sure she didn't go like, okay, honey, whatever you want to do, you're a spiritual leader. He had this joy-filled ministry moment, the greatest thing that he's ever done. And he did everything, get this, everything he did was because God called him to do it. He did it for righteousness reasons. He did it for holiness. He did it for the name and for the sake of God. Everything he did, none of it was self-serving. It was all for the kingdom of God and for God to, to work this miracle and bring freedom to all of Israel. And then the whole thing turned sour in his mouth because he's filled with remorse because his daughter, was the first thing 
and come out of the, the house. Verse 35 says, And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take it back, take back my vow. Making a vow to God is like making a covenant. It's, it's the modern day of making a promise. And, and the problem with our society, with our culture, is that we make promises all the time that we know we're never going to keep. We tell our boss, yeah, I'll have that project done by Friday. And we know good and well that it's not going to be done until next Wednesday. But we lie to his face and we make a promise that we're going to have it done knowing it will never get done. And we think it's okay to do that. We think that's the practice of business in America. You make promises that you can't keep because you need to keep the customers that you can't get. And you expect God to bless what you're doing when you're lying and breaking your promises and your vows. Who do we think we are? We made a promise and a vow before God when we took our spouse's hand and we put a ring on it and it said, I will love you in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad times, in wealth and in poverty. You and I will be together through all of this together. Nothing except death is going to separate us. And then three or four years later, we're like, you know what, honey? You're just not the woman I thought you were when I married you. So, you know, uh, I love you, but I'm just not in love with you. See you later, baby. And we act as if those vows mean nothing. The problem is God takes every vow that we say, every promise we make, he takes it seriously, even if we don't. So here we have this problem. And, and I, I want you to see what Jephthah does because this is just mind-boggling to me. Here's what he says to his daughter. You have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. What did she do? Yeah, hey, Dad, how you doing? Oh, you stupid girl, Right? The problem is, this, this, is this is us. This is us. When we have problems coming into our life, what do we do? It wasn't me. It was that guy's fault. Well, the sun and the moon and the stars and Mars and Venus, they're all aligned in the right direction. That made me half bat crazy. And you go like, what? We don't own our stuff. We want to blame shift it onto somebody else. Here's the thing. Jephthah made a, a rash vow to God that he should have never have made. And then when God calls him out and says, you made this vow about sacrificing the first thing that came out of your door, Jephthah is going like, it's not my fault, it's my daughter's fault. She should have never come out and said hi to me. She should have kicked the dog out the door first. Or sent a little goat or something. She should have known. It's not my fault. See, and that's what Jephthah is, is. That's what he's saying here. 
you know, but, but on the end of it, he puts, I, I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I can't take my vow back. Now, Ecclesiastes 5, 4 and 5 says this, when you uh, vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Listen, I don't know how many times I have shown up to people's homes where there has been some kind of a tragedy. There is some kind of a life issue that has thrown the family for a loop. It could be that ugly word of cancer that you hear. It could be the thing that somebody had a heart attack or a stroke. It could be the fact that somebody was killed in a car accident. It could be the worst news, I've lost my job and I have so much debt I don't know how I'm going to get past this. And they have all this, whatever it is that life is throwing at them. And what they do is they come to the point where they say to God, God, if you can just get me out of this mess, if you can just make me well and take this cancer away, if you can just do whatever you're going to do, well, I need your help right now. If you will do it, I promise God, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. When I show up on the scene of all that stuff, I say to the person, I said, I don't know what you've done in the moments that when you called me in the time I've gotten here, but I hope you didn't make a vow to God that you're going to do something because you will not keep that vow. You will not keep that promise to God and God will hold you accountable for it. And you know what they say to me? Is it too late for me to take it back? I said, no. You need to take it back right now. You need to go, God, I was a fool and I was an idiot. I didn't mean it. I'm not going to do that. Please just help me. God responds to that. And the, but that's what, that's what Jephthah did. You know, he made this outlandish promise to God without really thinking it through, not thinking that God was going to hold it to him. And, and a lot of times what we say is, you know, after we've made the vow and all the, it's all, everything's in it back to normal and things are looking good, we go like, oh God, I was so emotionally distressed when I made that vow. I didn't really know what I was thinking. You can't hold me to hold, keeping my vow, my promise. I was just emotionally distressed. And God's going like, yeah, yeah. But the amazing thing is what his daughter says, verse 36. And she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according what has been gone out of your mouth. No, um, now that the Lord has, uh, know that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. Jephthah's daughter has more integrity than her dad does. Jephthah's daughter saying like, you really did something foolish here. You really did something dumb. And it involves me now. And I'm going to be the recipient of your, your stupidity, dad. But I'm going to tell you something right now. You just need to do what you told God you're going to do, no matter what the outcome is. You're going to have to do it. We're going to have to pay the price of your big mouth, Dad. And he's going like, oh. And then the next thing she says to her father is, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away to, for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father 
who did with her according to his vow that he made. She had never known a man. Now, um, when you read this story right now, if you were to stop, you're going to go like, I don't know that I want to worship a God that's going to do that, that's going to hold this guy to his stupidity. Why doesn't God take into account that this man was just being an idiot and that he didn't really know what he was doing? God really didn't have him kill his daughter and sacrifice, did he? There's two major theories about this. The first theory is that Jephthah did take her, killed her, and sacrificed her burnt offering. I don't, I've got a problem with that theory, and I don't adhere to that theory, and I'm going to give you a couple reasons why. First of all, the narrative of the story doesn't lend its way to that ending. Because it doesn't say anywhere here that Jephthah took his daughter down to the temple, cut her throat, chopped her up, put her on the altar, lit a fire and burned her. You know why he didn't do that? Because there isn't a priest in all of Shiloh, one of God's men, that's going to take a daughter like that and sacrifice her on the altar. It's not going to happen. It can't happen. There's no priest that's going to make a child sacrifice. So the narrative doesn't give way to that. That's the first thing. The second thing um, is God never uses wickedness and evilness to contradict what he says. So he's not going he's, he's to say to you, don't commit adultery, and you turn around and go, but... I think this is my soulmate and I should have married this person instead of this person. And God's going like, well, okay, commit adultery this one time. It's not a big deal. You can use the wicked means of, of adultery to fulfill your selfish desire. God's never going to put up with that. God doesn't say, you can do this wickedness to fulfill this vow. No. That's not in God. Matter of fact, here's what it says in Leviticus 18. Don't give any one of your children to be burned in a sacrifice to the god Moloch, an act of sheer blasphemy of your God. I am God. That's from the message. And then he also says in Leviticus 20, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, that's a child sacrifice, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to, the many, to make my sanctuary unclean and profane my holy name. So there is no way that God is going to allow this child sacrifice to take place. So what did God really mean? What is the end of this? I mean, what was the punishment? Because he had to, he had to sacrifice the first thing that came out of his door. So here's how I see that the vow of Jephthah was fulfilled. Because he, she is his only daughter. He has no other children. And from the sounds of it, he will have no more children. And so for his family line to continue on, it rests solely on the shoulders of his daughter. But what he is saying to her is you will never know a man. You will be a virgin until you die. You will never bear any children. 
That's the most disgraceful thing a woman of that day would have to endure is the fact that she was barren and could not have children because the child carried on the family name. Even with this girl, he was putting his hopes in the fact that his daughter would marry someone, maybe one of his relatives, and the family, his family name, would continue on. But alas, she becoming a virgin. See what she does? She runs up the hill for two months and she cries and she weeps because she's going to be a virgin for the rest of her life. She will never know what it means to bear a child. She will never know what it means to nurse a little one on her breast. She is going to go into obscurity of the books of family tree with no children and that's going to be the most embarrassing thing. In other words, it's going to be as if she was dead. No life will come from her womb. His family is dead. It will not carry on. That all takes place because Jephthah made a rash vow to God that God said he would hold him accountable to. Jesus said this, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne of God or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that, this comes from evil. So when you say God, I'm going to do this, then do it. And, you know, you can say to God, no, I don't want to do that. God's going to go like, okay. You can say no, but I'll make you miserable until you say yes. <laughs> I dare you to try to say no. So here's what I want you to, to get when Jep- is the lessons that we can learn from Jephthah. Okay, here they are. First, God can use us regardless of our background. Jephthah, He was the son of a prostitute, and yet God did miraculous things. It wasn't his pedigree that made him great. It was God who took a prostitute son and did great things through him. So God will use us and work in us in great ways despite our past. Second, we are not to make rash commitments or promises to God. In Jephthah's case, he lost his only child over such an action. Only make promises that you can keep. A promise is the same thing as a vow or a covenant, and God takes those things very seriously. And by the way, when you're talking with God and you want God to do something for you, just ask God to do it. Don't make any strings attached to it. Just simply say, I need your help. He will respond. Third thing, when you fall short, and you will, take responsibility for your own actions. Don't be a blame shifter. Don't put it out on somebody else and say it was them. It was that thing. It was the alignment of the stars that made me do it. You take responsibility and ask God to forgive you, and he will forgive you every time. Um, You need to stay faithful to God no matter what it costs you. Live a life of courage, faith, 
integrity, and vision. And the fourth thing is we may suffer because of other people's sins. That's a reality of life. Other people are going to sin and it is going to cause you pain. But that doesn't give you an excuse to go ahead and sin also. Live in the holiness and and the righteousness God's called you to live in. Because God's more concerned about the development of your conduct, your character, than he is of your comfort. There are a lot of circumstances in our lives we don't have control over. However, we also have control over how we react to them. We must be close to God, not just during the come close to God, not only in the time of need, but when things are going great in our life, let's not forget who our God is. James 1.24, 1 verses 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfast. Let steadfastness have its way, full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Those trials grow us in our relationship with God. Amen? Father, we thank you today that even in our stupidity, even when we say stupid things that we shouldn't say, even when we ask you to do something and we try to put conditions on it, you will be faithful even when we are not. Forgive us for those times, God, when we've looked and we've said, it's not my fault. Help us to be men and women of integrity. Help us to walk in the fullness and newness of Jesus Christ. Help us to take our life issues that become idols in our lives, that drive us to fear and, and make us uh, and, and bring temptation into our lives that we turn our eyes away from you. Help us to destroy those idols and bring them down from the high places and place you, the King of glory, where you belong. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you will walk with us no matter what life throws at us. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. Hey, if you want to come and do some prayer up at the front, the front is open. You can come and pray. If you need someone to pray with you, they'll come and ask. And if you want to pray, if you need them to pray with you, just let them know or you just do business with God. Let God rule your life.